prohibition of the African National Congress, the Pan-Africanist Congress, the South African Communist Party, and a number of subsidiary organizations is being rescinded. I repeat, the steps that have been decided are the following. The prohibition of the African National Congress, the Pan-Africanist Congress, the South African Communist Party, and a number of subsidiary organizations is being rescinded. People serving prison sentences merely because they were members of one of these organizations will be identified and released. A little more adjustment of the transmitters there. Sorry for the break. Well, you heard that uh, extraordinary, well, it was expected, I suppose, over the last week or so, it was expected news from uh, South Africa. Kader Asman is joining me briefly on the telephone now for a quick reaction to the news of the impending release of, uh, of Mandela. Good morning to you, Kader. Good morning, Gabe. Uh, what, what is your quick reaction? Well, it is an extraordinary thing because I think that this giant now will join the people in trying to bring about a peaceful solution to apartheid. Back in 1990, news of Nelson Mandela's impending release came through that morning. I was working on the Gay Burn show at the time. Kada Asmal was the obvious choice. One's joy is unconfined. Well, well, de Klerk is going to lift the ban on, on the ANC as well, and on the South African Communist Party, and the Pan-African Congress. Yeah. And he is releasing prisoners, and, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a very, very wide-ranging, uh, it's a clean sweep. Like me, Carter came from South Africa and was living in Ireland. He was a teacher, lawyer, and political activist, one of the founders of the Irish anti-apartheid movement. Huge piece of secured legislation uh, as to what of that will be retained, and the other factors would be largely the existing law that make... Uh, political life uh, virtually impossible, how much of that will be. But the main thing is, of course, that the apartheid laws, the race laws... Five months after this conversation with Gay, Carter went home, where he died on the 22nd of June 2011. One can take uh, apartheid activities in South Africa, when we look at the fine print, uh, we, uh, to, to make the final... Uh, final uh, attack on apartheid itself. It is at least the beginning of what you have prayed for for so long. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, well, I mean, the, the, I can't communicate to your listeners or to you uh, the extraordinary sense of uh, joy I feel. And Earlier this I year, I followed Carter from Dublin to Cape Town to see how this man, who had contributed so much in Ireland, played a part in forging the new South Africa. ...to take part in uh, a normal political activity in South Africa. Hmm. Well done, Kara. Thank you for joining Thank us. And, and, and congratulations. You've worked, you and many, many others, so many others, you've worked and you've longed for this moment for a long, long time, and I hope you get pleasure out of it now. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good morning right. to you. Goodbye. Part of the torture of exile is the unknowing, and in this my grandfather certainly shared. From exile you can only imagine the birth of a nephew or niece, the illness of a parent or child, the loss of a loved person or place. These things wash around within you, pricking your conscience, fraying your memories, and serving as a constant reminder of your otherness in this new place in which you live but will never truly be home. All he had to cling to were the memories of the landscape, the sights, sounds and smells of home.
We met in 1961, early in 1961, and um, I was working for the what was then called the National Council for Civil Liberties, and is now Liberty. Uh, my boss was the first honorary, our first secretary of the what was then the boycott movement, before the anti-apartheid movement. So he asked me, would I like to go to a fundraising party? And uh, so I duly went, I think in Hampstead Town Hall. And when I got there, the hostess... <laughs> and most people were considerably older than I was. And, and she said, she grabbed me and she grabbed Quadra and she said, you must dance. <laughs> and neither of us were terribly good at dancing. So we duly danced, as we were told, to the best of our ability. And then later on, Carter came and said, um, would I like to go to the premiere of the South African musical King Kong? So I said, yes, I would. And that was the start of it. <laughs> this is my grandmother, Louise Asma. We sit in the shade of her beautiful home in Cape Town, surrounded by the memorabilia of their life in politics. On the wall behind me, a photograph of Nelson Mandela, signed to Louise. We moved to Dublin um, in 1962, I think, um, after Codd finished his degree and he had to get a job. So that's where he got a job. I met him because he was the first law lecturer when I uh, began my study of legal science in Trinity in 1962. Former President Mary Robinson. And uh, I warmed greatly to him because we were students and, you know, students are always a little bit inclined to uh, find the weaknesses. We would say of Kader that he would never use 100 words where 400 would do, you know, the tendency to be a bit long-winded, but he was very loved by students, and I saw that right up to the end, because I taught law side by side with him for about 15 years in Trinity, uh, as a part-time lecturer. There's a thing that he managed to do in Trinity, and that was to um, help people, even people that disagreed with him everything else. He treated them all the same. Reverend Terence McCaughey, former president of the Irish anti-apartheid movement. That uh, is my abiding memory of him on the positive side. You know, that he gave people the benefit of the doubt. Carter was a man with a huge passion for fighting injustice. He was without a doubt somebody who one could see would make his mark. He of course was the front of house man. Gary Kilgallen, vice chairman of the Irish anti-apartheid movement. And uh, Louise really was behind Carter 110%. I saw them as people of action but also people who were full of goodness, uh, who really wanted to do something for uh, South Africans. And uh, they 
became friends of mine. They were very friendly people. And so we became friends. And so did Rafik Motia, fellow exile and political activist. Carter was pivotal in running the organization, in getting new ideas, in campaigning. He was, in a way, a tireless person, and that he continued to do things uh, for the anti-party movement because he was aware that every moment counted, that you had to put the regime in South Africa under pressure. In 1986, Kader Asmal became part of the Constitutional Committee of the African National Congress, formed by Oliver Tambo to craft a post-apartheid constitution for South Africa. With lawyer and freedom fighter Albie Sachs, Kader was mandated to draft a Bill of Rights for a future democratic South Africa, a blueprint for a new society. And that meant flying from London to Dublin, um, being driven out to Carter and Louise's house, and wow, what a moment, what a moment. And we divided the task into two, that I would sit down and I asked to be seated at his kitchen table with a, I think it was a ballpoint pen and blank paper, no books, no texts, no declarations, nothing. Just me and my heart, my vision, and my sense of justice. Carter, in the meanwhile, would be working on modes of enforcement, and then we would swap roles. And I would look at his proposals for modes of enforcement, and he would look at my text. And I just know they came home and started writing different bits of it. And uh, Alvi was insisting that he could type up what he had written, in spite of being only one-handed. And I had to type up quarters. <laughs> And I've still got that copy which they signed for me of what they wrote, whenever it was. Yeah. He was wonderful and he was difficult. Uh, wonderful because he was sparky, creative, unpredictable, intense, funny, uh, exploratory, and also extraordinarily widely read. I mean, he, he must be the only person, I'm sure, not must be, he was, I can say it emphatically, the only person who quoted a papal encyclical to a meeting of the Constitutional Committee of the ANC. Um, he just read everything. He absorbed, he, he, he devoured information from all over the world. So he had that amazing stock of knowledge saving it up, cluttering his mind, maybe sometimes overfilling his mind with too many ideas, too much facts, data, information, but ready to come out uh, when necessary. So in that sense, fantastic person to work with. He wasn't um, a quiet uh, person who put his head down uh, and would say, OK, give me a few minutes and come up with a text. Uh, he would interrupt, he would speak, he would sparkle, um, and that was Carter. And um, I remember it was drizzling, 
There's nothing unusual about drizzle in Dublin. Uh, but I also remember that Kada, who was an inveterate smoker, agreed that he wouldn't smoke inside the house as long as I was there. Uh, I, I was an anti-smoker, partly because it just hurt my eyes. Uh, it inhibited my capacity to work. So a big contribution that Kada made towards uh, constitutional justice in South Africa was to go outside the house to have his puffs. He set sail for England on the Edinburgh Castle in the summer of 1958, never dreaming that he would become an exile. By sort of 1989, there was some kind of inkling, I think, and Carter used to, was then on the NEC. The NEC? The National Executive Committee. And uh, so there was some inkling that things were happening and there were discussions. But you, you didn't dare believe it, like, and we had this release, Nelson Mandela committee and uh, we went for this meeting in London and we went into a room with a lot of journalists and television people and the radio journalist says it's been announced that Nelson Mandela is going to be released. We didn't actually believe it at first and it wasn't until it came on the television set that we actually sort of all erupted in cheers and things and, and then we knew everything was going to happen. Nelson Mandela was released from jail on the 11th of February in 1990 and my grandfather went home to South Africa later that year. And in fact when it happened I was in, um, in Australia, I was living in, in Sydney. This is my dad, Adam Aslan. And so I was watching this release of Mandela live on, on television with some friends in Sydney and it suddenly hit me that he would be going home and it was almost like a... Uh, a, a bolt hitting me and I knew that moment that he was going to go even though he hadn't discussed it or anything I knew that uh, he was going to go home you know the family home and the family life in Dublin you know would never be there again you know that um, and I, I had no doubts that he would you know more or less be on the next plane and which he kind of was I mean uh, I was a bit Surprised in the speed in which he he kind of you know when when they said you know everybody and uh, everybody could come back. I mean he he upped and he he moved very fast. My uncle Rafiq Asma. But no, it's not a surprise. He spent his whole life. Uh, uh, it's a very uh, unusual thing, you know, that that you could have a such a dream and it could suddenly become realised in in the drop of a hat, you know. And so obviously. Um, uh, there was no surprise at all. Uh, was where um, where he'd been fighting to to get to for all those years, you know. So I mean, we knew about. I mean, South Africa uh, was a constant, you know, in our house. He came the first time in June 1990 because the National Executive Committee of the ANC was meeting here for the first time in Cape Town, and then and then he was coming to and fro, and. Then it took me a year to sell the house in Dublin. <laughs> so I didn't come properly till right the end of 91. I used to go upstairs and look out of the bedroom window from which I can see a slice of Table Mountain and I felt miserable. Look at Table Mountain and feel better. <laughs> yeah, I soon got into things. 
I was fairly certain that he was going to go stand for Parliament. I didn't envisage him being a minister. I don't know if he did, but <laughs> I was quite surprised when, when it actually happened. On the 10th of May in 1994, Nelson Mandela was inaugurated as President of South Africa. They flew to Pretoria expecting to travel up and back to Cape Town the same day. Trevor Manuel, minister in the presidency in charge of the National Planning Commission, describes what happened. And somewhere towards the end of the day, uh, a number of us were approached and asked to remain behind. And so it ended uh, uh, up that Kada and Louise and uh, my ex-wife Lynn and I uh, were, were taken together to a hotel. We'd done nothing to prepare for a stayover, and so we had to make do with what we could that evening. Stayed in a hotel in Pretoria. Following morning, gathered at the Union buildings. I knew at that point, because Mandela had told me that I'd become the Minister of Trade and Industry, and that uh, the other parties to the Government of National Unity were not going to contest this, but Carter didn't know what he would do. And, and at some point in the afternoon, Carter was called in and emerged and uh, shared with Louise Lynn and I that he would be assigned the responsibility of water affairs and forestry. And he was a bit shocked. I think that he'd hoped to get something more um, associated with the field of law, broadly defined, that he'd always worked in. And uh, after a few minutes of consultation, uh, declared we will make water sexy in South Africa. Uh, there were 16 million people who, uh, roughly, who, who ha did not have access to safe water. That was at a time of, of a population of about 40, 40 million. The uh, figure for sanitation was considerably higher. Uh, and and at the, by the time Carter left, he had made extraordinary inroads, set in, in place uh, the, the processes for, for getting delivery. And, and we have 93% now of people have access to safe, safe water. And, I mean, it's, it's something that hasn't been done anywhere else in the world, you know, at that scale. Um, and, and it was driven, like all the other things he did, the water law, the, the working for water uh, work and, and all the other things uh, with, with enormous passion and impatience and, and charm, I suppose, as well. Carter plucked Dr Guy Preston from Academe to work as his special advisor. You have lived here for a long time? Bah. Fifteen years. Fifteen years? Mm. And how long have you had water here? Home Ten years ago. Ten years. Ten years. Far away from Guy's Cape Town office in the rural Umsinyati area of KwaZulu-Natal, uh -huh. Mama Haderbe is one of the people to have benefited from access to a clean water supply. Nothing. You have to go to the rivers, this side or that side. How far away is that? Very far. 
It's, it's, up, it's more down than a kilometer down. Yeah. Oh, good it's more than a, And carry the water back up then? Yes. On my head. So one trip a day or two or more? We have to walk three times. Three times? Cooking, washing. Yeah. Sometimes you have to carry the, wash the laundry to the fridge so that it's going to be closer and wash there. Yeah, mm. yeah. And, and so uh, the water here is piped in or how does it work? It is piped in through our normal reticulation. Yeah, that's right. And and are there are the tanks in the yard or where are they? Yeah, yeah. The tank. yeah we, are, we can go in. Okay. Uh, this is uh, uh, basically a 200 liter groundwater tank. There is a special what to call uh, EBU electronic bailiff unit. It's a, a box that can accommodate up to 15 households. It opens during the, the night and it, uh, what you call, uh, uh, fills all the, the, the tanks. But since we have increased the volume from 200 to 300, we have just set this, what you call this uh, EBU, this bailiff unit system, to kick at least twice a day. Late, late in the afternoon, it will kick again in order to top up, in order for, for, for her as well to, 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 to reach her 300 liters. But right now, we are in the process of phasing out the ground tanks by replacing it with uh, what you call a, a water management device with a, a, a meter with a special device that can release up to 300 liter per day. But I say more the water must make the big difference. For yeah, you. water, hey, hey, because you have to wake up early before the cows and everything yeah. go into the water. You must be the first before they open their crawls for the cows to destroy the water. You have to wake up early. <laughs> Because so when the cow just go in, just do everything yeah. inside the water. Of course. Yeah. Of course. And then you coming along and the water's dirty. Dirty. What time would you have got up to go and get water? About five o'clock. Five o'clock before they open the cross so that the cows can go right round wherever they like to. So you'd go down at five o'clock and yes. how long would it take you to get the water then? Not carrying anything, you have to go fast down slower when you come back because you're carrying something heavier. So you'd be maybe a couple of hours in the morning doing this? Yes. And how big a container would you 25 carry? Liter or 10 liter. 25 liter. 25 liter. Normally 25, but for big some they carry 5, five liters, liters, 10 liters. Mm. And were you working outside of the home at the same time? Were you working in a job somewhere? Yeah, I was working as clothing, clothing share factory. So you had to do all of this and then go and work? Carry water first and then take the bus or taxi to the work. And then you come back in the evening? You got the water for wash, for bathing, cooking, for the day. And no electricity either at that time? At that time there was no electricity. Which makes it difficult again. They had to make fire. Or plumber stove sometimes. Some of them. In another office in Durban city centre, Dr. Neil McLeod, Head of Water and Sanitation for Ethiquini Municipality, explains what they've done in the Durban area. And so when the New South Africa was formed, and we had what I call the city of three million people, three one millions. We still had the million of the old Durban who had full services, first world services. You had a million that lived in these dormitory townships where the services over the 
sort of 20-year period from the late 70s to the late 90s had just been allowed to deteriorate. And then there was the million with no services. Basically got water from rivers and used the bush as a toilet. And that was the challenge we faced at the start of the New South Africa, which was when Kate Osmar became the minister and basically set the challenges of transforming the water and sanitation landscape in South Africa. And Guy Preston and he started talking to me about why don't you think about pro-poor policies and free water, which was almost a heresy in those days, that you would give somebody a valuable resource like water for free. Um, but the more I looked into it, the more I realized that there was a lot of sound logic behind it. So in 97, we convinced the council here to introduce a free water, basic free water policy for poor people. Um, and uh, eventually it spread to the country after 2000. We basically stopped spending money on replacing assets because remember I said to you that when the old Durban existed, we just took a certain amount of money every year and used it to replace assets. Oh, that asset's 50 years old? Right, get rid of it, put a new one in. So that we maintain the condition of our assets. We stopped doing that. We stopped replacing assets. We basically allowed the existing system to start to deteriorate for a longer period of time than we had in the past. And we diverted all that cash to now expanding our network. And we laid thousands of kilometers of piping into these rural areas and to informal shack settlements and that kind of thing. That means we've delivered water to basically 1.3, 1.4 million people over the last 11 years. If demand-side management became one of the central planks of water policy during Kada Asmal's ministry, the control of invasive alien plants for effective water conservation very quickly and significantly became another. So, so Carter started this whole uh, initiative and was very much the, the father figure or parent figure of, of uh, the Working for Water program, which started from a small base, 25 million, although it seemed like a fortune at the time. And, and we got that money... In, on the 16th of October in 1995, we started, and Carter cut down the first tree, and and it was typical of Carter that he he hacked at this this acacia mernsia, a black wattle from Australia, and it was it was a bit stubborn, so he took 16 or 20 or whatever it was, uh, swipes at it before it finally decided it was easier just to collapse and die. And he stood back like a like a seasoned farmer, and he took out a piece of grass from his teeth, and he said, "One slash I smell," and uh, that name stuck with him. On the side of Table Mountain, I meet one of the working for water teams as they wait to go out. <laughs> So how many people are in your group? Yeah. It's supposed to be 10. But it's the first day, so some of them is on a Monday. Yeah. The plant eradication work is contracted out, and each contractor brings his or her own team. So he's cutting down the poplar now. Very popular. So he's clearing all the, the grass from around the, the base of, of the plant. The work is manual and intensely physical, the returns depending on high labour inputs. 
In this way, Working for Water has become one of the largest expanded public works programs in South Africa. We have at the moment uh, about 28,000 people directly in Working for Water, but with the other programs uh, which are aligned to it, it's closer to 40,000 people. But there had been some good work that had been done in previous years. That in the last years of apartheid had died. Uh, and so it was vital to to try to build on that good work and and you know to take the thing to a scale that has never been you know this is apparently the biggest conservation program in Africa um, so uh, I, I'm, I'm absolutely sure that that had Carter not been where he was when he was uh, we wouldn't have been able to to sell this, and, and he, is, he was brilliant like that. I mean, Carter worked himself to exhaustion on, kind of on a daily basis. Uh, you could see the energy levels just decreasing by the end because he put so much into it. Uh, again, Carter got uh, Achim Steiner, who's now high up in the UN, and, uh, and they... they had this international study that looked at at dams and and when is it uh, appropriate to build dams and how to build dams and how to decommission dams uh, and that's generally regarded as a as an excellent uh, uh, aspect of of the, of, of the work uh, that he did. I think the water law, the National Water Act that that uh, came out in 1998. Uh, Carter always used to say that was his his defining uh, contribution in 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 water affairs. I used to try to goad him in saying, of course it wasn't. It was working for water. But uh, but you know, as a lawyer, uh, he took particular pleasure in that, and and the way in which he brought young people in to to develop uh, this very far-reaching legislation that was borrowing from the best of other parts in the world and and you know again with this self-same energy just negotiating with people talking with people trying to find ways to deal with things that were inherently difficult Kader was assigned a house on the estate. I was assigned a house off the estate when it became available. Uh, and just as I was about to move into uh, the house that, that I'd been assigned, Carter said, why don't you come and live with me in the house? So at some point in 1994, probably around uh, August or so, I became a lodger in Carter's house. Uh, and that was uh, an arrangement that, that obtained for the next decade when he and I served together as members of cabinet. We uh, lived together, we had our breakfast together frequently, uh, dinner uh, would be at, uh, together, uh, but we also read together and worked together so that when we went into the cabinet room on Wednesdays, uh, it was frequently from positions that had been informed by long and hard work through the night. Carter was exceedingly, but exceedingly good at this because uh, through his life, 
He'd learned to speed read. He'd learned what to look for in documents. He was trained to do this himself rather than depend on a myriad of, of researchers to do it for him. And that gave him a very strong edge. And so almost immediately everybody looked up to Kader for his views. And it was never confined to the portfolios of water, affairs and forestry. When Thabo Mbeki became president of South Africa in 1999, my grandfather became minister of education. I don't think he thought he was going to carry on in water affairs. But, I mean, he had no idea what was going to, to happen. I think they were always terribly secretive. And you <laughs> sat in a room in some part of the, the presidential building and got called in. And we went and sat there about two o'clock in the morning <laughs> and waited to be told that God had got, had got education, which he was happy about. I say he would have liked justice, but he was also very keen on education, and that's what he had been, a teacher and a lecturer throughout his career. Uh, Carter set about uh, the task with a lot of enthusiasm, um, but it is an unbelievably difficult and thankless assignment. And I think that uh, from time to time, Carter ran into headwinds. In Pretoria, I go to the Technicon to meet Ahmed Essop, who is Chief Executive Officer of the Council of Higher Education. When Carter was Minister of Education, Ahmed was Chief Director for Higher Education Planning and Coordination in the Department of Education. No, Carter initiated what was a fairly major restructuring of the higher education sector, so uh, the end result of the process was that we used to, under apartheid, have 36 higher education institutions, universities, and what were known as technicons. I suppose the equivalent, at least in the UK, would have been the traditional polytechnics. Uh, I'm not sure what the Irish equivalent now is, but colleges of technology and so forth. And we, under Carl, they were reduced to 23. So the institutions were merged, in some cases what were historically white institutions were merged with historically black institutions. So in a sense, he undid what was the sort of spatial geography of, of apartheid, of higher education under apartheid. So you know, it was a fairly major focus. In fact, he came in for a lot of flack for the changes in higher education. They were not popular changes. And it took a lot of uh, uh, persistence. And, and, and often he, he was not quite sure whether he should take it through. And, and, the big, and the big stumbling block, or the big opposition to it, in part came from what were the historically black institutions, uh, because a lot of them were at the receiving end of the proposals. So there was a lot of unhappiness because it was seen as an attempt to keep the white institutions for what they were. But even in the cabinet, you know, the first cabinet meeting where the proposals were presented, they were not approved and he was asked to go back and relook at them. Uh, and that was a major, major stumbling block because there were all manner of people who were mobilizing 
support against the proposals. And eventually they did pass muster, but it, it did take a lot of doing uh, and political work on his part to get, get the proposals through. Uh, in the case of the school system, the review of the curriculum, uh, or what was known as Curriculum 2005, Outcomes-Based Education, he initiated a review, which again was very unpopular, uh, because it was the sort of ideological position of the ANC at the time. And it took a lot of guts to do that. And while he didn't get rid of all of the aspects of outcome, he introduced important changes, which again is forgotten. So people often, when they refer to outcomes-based education, or the problems of outcome, blame Carter Asma. Carter didn't introduce it. It was introduced by his predecessor. He reviewed it, made adjustments to it, I think would have made more fundamental adjustments if he had a completely free hand uh, in a political sense, which he didn't. Uh, so he, he went as far as he could. Uh, and, and, and some of those changes, which are now again beginning to filter through, were, were his legacy. It may not be as, as strong as his legacy in water, but education is a much more contested area. Everybody believes they know some of all have kids or we've all been through the education system. So it's a much more difficult area to, to deal with. He remained in the cabinet until 2004 and in parliament until 2008. A few months later, he would have had to vote on the decision to disband the Scorpions the special agency to investigate serious crimes and corruption. He felt he could more easily voice his opposition from outside Parliament. He found it rather depressing and, you see, very few people were left from the first Parliament. And, of course, even fewer now. So that um, there wasn't so much... <laughs> comradeship I suppose and uh, he, and then there was this resolution um, disbanding the scorpions which he opposed um, so that's when he decided to resign and he'd had enough of parliament I think it was difficult being in parliament after you've been a minister and not having quite the same status uh, and so he decided he'd, he'd work better outside parliament and uh, he was one of the people who spoke at the... There was a demonstration that walked to Parliament, and he spoke at that. So he was active on that issue and was a strong voice on it, yes. Well, I think it was painful, and it grew increasingly painful because of the extent of corruption, and it wasn't being combated as much as it should have been, and his disappointment at the lack of leadership, really, I think, that... Um, when he did and it was increasingly painful the sort of nearer he got in, in last year but I mean but he continued to speak out on you know he wrote this weekly article for Fin Week in which he lambasted the government on various occasions he couldn't speak so much towards the end, but he continued, for say, writing this article and keeping actively involved in however he could. My grandfather died on the 22nd of June in 2011. 
he was a very caring person. He had a great sense of humour. And of course, I mean, he was brilliant intellectually and he had the most incredible memory. I mean, he could remember every cricket match he'd ever been to and who played <laughs> ridiculous things like this. And uh, no, he was, it was always exciting and interesting to sort of, you know, to, to talk to him, relate to him. I mean, whatever about life being not so easy, it was certainly never boring. Well, he was, uh, he was frenetic, you know. He, ne he didn't stop. I mean, he really, uh, truly didn't stop. He was always busy. I mean, uh, he couldn't relax. I mean, I never saw a human who really he hated the notion of a holiday. To just to go and sit and, and to do nothing was something that was completely alien to him. So that's my kind of my um, memory, I would say, mainly of, of uh, this frenetic energy that just didn't stop from the moment the eyes opened to till they closed. And he didn't even sleep very much, you know. I mean, he was like he could get away with you know four or five hours sleep, and then he'd be back on it um, non-stop. And he would also throw in. You know, a large amount of socialising and partying in, within within his kind of very full day, um, and he managed to balance. So that was the amazing thing. He could he could balance it all. You know, uh, quite a juggler. You know, a day doesn't go by where I don't think of him. Or, um, I feel for my mother as well. It's um, you know, it's. Um, you know, her, her life partner of 50 years is 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 now gone, and, and um, it's uh, of course it's a difficult time. You know, it's it's a different time. It's a new sort of chapter. Um, but yes, I do. I miss him. He wore his heart on his sleeve, um, and I think you know if I look back at what I sort of would respect in him. Um, you know, is the fact that you know he was completely honourable and and um, uncorruptible. Back in Dublin, in a large Georgian room that is a far cry from South Africa, former President Mary Robinson had this to add: He loved being a minister. He loved being Minister for Water and Forestry and, and the right to water being an issue. He loved chairing that commission on dams and putting human rights principles in with the result that the World Bank didn't fully embrace the report of the uh, commission. Uh, we love to call him the dam buster. Um, he loved being Minister for Education. He was passionate about it uh, for the new South Africa. So he was disappointed when he wasn't reappointed. Not, not I think, surprised, but, but disappointed. He took it you know, on the chin that he would be as active a member of parliament. He then, if I remember, retired from parliament in about 2008. And then he was a very courageous moral voice. But the extent to which he was listened to at the time, I think, um, is, is for South Africans to reflect on. Uh, I had the impression from him and from some others that um, his voice was very important, but it was, you know, a little bit of a lonely voice. This is for... Louise, Adam, Griffey, and for Kevin. 
On the 10th of October 2011, a memorial gathering in honour of Carter took place in the Mansion House in Dublin, the location where he, Louise and a few others started the Irish anti-apartheid movement so many years ago. There, Seamus Heaney spoke. There was something fabulous about his destiny. The teenager who was refused the right to buy a newspaper by a white shopkeeper in his hometown of Sanger, coming back to take his place in a nation transformed and ennobled by the vision and stamina of workers like him in the political vineyard. Over the last day or two, I have been thinking therefore, of famous epitaphs where I might uh, find some words and sentiments that would equal to Canada. W.B. Yeats's cast a cold eye on life, on death, horseman passed by, definitely not. Remember <laughs> 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 there was a war my cast on life. <clears throat> but another piece of lapidary verse from Yeats's pen brings us close. This is Yeats's translation of Jonathan Swift's Latin epitaph, which is on the walls of St. Patrick's Cathedral. Swift's epitaph seems to me to get very close to it. Anyway, Swift's epitaph. Swift, Swift has sailed, sailed into his rest. rest. Savage indignation Savage there indignation cannot lacerate his breast. Imitate him if you dare, world-besotted traveller. He served human liberty 